Uh, well, welcome once again to Grace Bible Church this morning. My name is, if we don't know each other, my name is Wes Carpenter. I'm the missions pastor um, here at GBC, and it's my privilege to get to teach uh, in 2 Corinthians today. Uh, but before we do, and before we get into chapter 12, I kind of want to start with a question. Uh, I, w- I want us to think about uh, a marriage proposal, right? If, if a guy is going to propose to a girl, what are his objectives? He might want it to be real classy and fancy. He, he, hopefully, he really wants to honor this woman. Um, maybe he wants it to be a total surprise. That is certainly uh, what, how I approached uh, my proposal to my wife, Maddie, a few years ago. I, uh, what I really, really wanted was for her to be very surprised. I didn't want her to see it coming. I thought that would be fun. I thought that would be you know, joy-filled, and she was totally surprised, uh, which was great. It also took her a few minutes to say yes. Um, so, you know, we have to figure that out. But, and, and here's an aside. Uh, this is just a helpful FYI. Uh, if you are asking the question, will she or won't she say yes, you are not ready to propose. Uh, you need more time. Uh, but, but, you know, when I was proposing, I started weeks ahead of time making plans. I had to buy a ring. I, I was getting friends and family together for a celebration afterwards. Um, I was deciding where to do it and what I was going to do and wrote a letter. I did all these preparations, and she had no idea, and it was awesome. But I want you to imagine a situation where a guy, because he wants it to be a surprise, starts working behind the scenes. He's doing certain things on purpose because he loves her. He's doing things that could seem hard to understand, maybe even secretive, right? So he's stepping outside to take a phone call, and she's like, what's he doing? She walks up, and he's got his laptop open, and he shuts it immediately. She's like, he's hiding something. He's, you know, what's, what's going on? Is he seeing somebody else? Is he about to break up with me, right? In, in that scenario, she's not trusting him. And look, if she fails to trust him when he's planning a proposal... Uh, and she breaks it off, that's going to be real sad. That's not what we're shooting for. Especially if the reality is, is that this guy is working behind the scenes to one day make her his beautiful bride. She's got to trust him a little bit. We are nearing the end of 2 Corinthians. We are in the last couple chapters and, and, and where we are today and where we were last week and next week, I mean, this is the end of the road. And what Paul is doing in this section of the letter is he is defending his ministry. He is offering a warning to this church. And specifically today, the text we're looking at this morning, he is addressing a major misunderstanding between himself and the Corinthian church. So let's dive right in. We do not want to make the same sort of misunderstanding. Okay, verse 11 through verse 13 is where we're going to start, chapter 12. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this 
wrong. So out of the gate, he's basically telling this church, you know, I, I thought y'all would defend me, right? There's these false teachers in the church, these people calling themselves super apostles. They're, they're claiming they're above me. They're claiming I'm not an apostle. And instead of defending me to these people, you're, you're doing nothing. What's going on? They're missing something that should be obvious, is the argument that Paul's making. He's saying, look, I've performed signs and wonders and mighty works. What are those mighty works? Churches have been planted. Lives have been changed. And yet they're like, is Paul the real deal when it comes to being an apostle? What's, the, what's going on here? Verse uh, 13 is interesting. He's, he's addressing a complaint that must have come up. Somebody has said, you know, look, Paul doesn't favor us like he favors those other churches. You know, he for some reason loves them, but he, he doesn't love us. And Paul's saying, what are you talking about? On top of demonstrating my apostolic authority, I have also not taken any money from you because I, I haven't burdened you. What's the deal? And this opening phrase, I am a fool. And this closing phrase, forgive me this wrong, is basically Paul being a little bit sarcastic. He's telling this church, y'all, I, I kind of thought y'all would have picked up on this by now. My bad. Y'all aren't getting it. I gave you more credit, apparently, than you deserve. And so after saying that, he basically dives right in to explain exactly what he's trying to do. Verses 14 and 15. He's going to explain, Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul is saying, look, I've been with you all before. I'm coming to you again. And when I come to you again, I'm going to do the same thing I did last time. I'm not going to be a financial burden on you. I'm not going to ask you for ministry support. Why? He says he's delighted to pour himself out for their benefit. He's, he says, look, just like a parent provides for their child, a spiritual father should provide free of charge for his spiritual children. This is him sort of repeating some things he said in prior chapters. Now look, just as it is today, then it was common to pay a tribute or to pay a speaking fee to a traveling preacher or speaker. It was common to give money to support a ministry worker. That's appropriate. But Paul is being deliberate here not to do that. He's trying to communicate something totally different to them. And man, they're not responding well. Verse 15, he says, If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He's loving them more than these super apostles are loving him because he's refusing to take their money. The super apostles don't care about the Corinthians. They're taking their money and they love him less. Sorry, they love Paul less than those super apostles. Something's up here. They're not getting him. They're missing something. And what's worse is not only are they missing something, they actually start to believe that the opposite is true. That they don't stop at Paul really isn't for us. They go even further to say Paul's against us. That's what we see in verses 16 
through 18. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty to you, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul and anyone he sent to them have not burdened the Corinthians with a need for support. But clearly, somehow, some way, they've, they've compared Paul to the super apostles. They've compared themselves to other churches. And Paul's not like the others. Paul's relationship with this church is not like the others. And so they're starting to think something must be up. Something is going on. Perhaps a storyline bubbled up with the dissenters in the church. And they say, you know what? Paul's crafty. He's not asking for money because he's trying to trick us. Maybe this big collection he wants to take for the poor people in Judea back in Jerusalem, maybe he's just going to keep that for himself, right? That is what's happening here. Tricky Paul is up to no good. And so the very thing, one of the very things that Paul is using to demonstrate his love, care, and concern for this church has been twisted so that they might think he's out to trick them and take advantage of them. He is royally misunderstood. Now, there's something actually quite interesting here that I just could not let go of this week. So, on a previous visit, when he was with the Corinthians in the past, he had been receiving support from the Macedonian church. You don't need to turn there, but this is described in chapter 11. And so the question is this. Paul says, you know what? A parent doesn't need to, sorry, a parent will provide for their children. A child doesn't provide for their parent. That's what he just said. But with the Corinthians, he's saying, I'm not going to take any support from you because I'm your spiritual father. But now why, why would he take support from the Macedonian church? He was their spiritual father too. What's going on here? I think Paul recognized a danger faced by the Corinthian church. You see, he took money, Paul did, for ministry support from the poor church in Macedonia. He would not take it from the rich church in Corinth. Why? Look, he's already asked them to be generous in chapters 8 and 9. He's already said, be free with your money. Give it away. Give your resources. So the danger that I'm talking about right here is not the danger of hoarding money. What is the danger that the rich church in Corinth faced that the rich church in Houston today faces? Here it is. For rich people, so often, the easy thing is to give money. But to give our time, it is really hard. Let me give you an example that is true in this church. Uh, for years now, our church has had an adoption fund. We want to support families that want to adopt, and there are financial burdens that families have to undertake to adopt a child, and so we set up a fund to help families. Thousands of dollars have been sitting in that fund idle for years. People call us, and they say, hey, I want to support orphan care. I want to contribute to the adoption fund, and we have to tell them, we don't need your money. 
Because do you know what an orphan needs in July of 2023? They do not need a distant benefactor. They need a mom and a dad. Now, one of the things that is so great about why we haven't emptied that fund is that God has provided for a lot of the families that have adopted, they've been able to meet those needs on their own. The other reason we haven't needed to empty that fund is because so many families in our church are fostering to adopt. They're taking care of vulnerable children in our foster care system, and because the state provides resources, they're not needed from the church. But you know what foster kids need in July of 2023? They need foster parents that can have a night out and they have a babysitter, but the state doesn't let anybody babysit foster kids. They need to be certified. They need to be approved. There are hoops that you have to jump through to babysit a foster kid. That's what foster kids need. And look, the danger that the rich face is being self-satisfied as benefactors. Because what God would rather have from us is self-sacrifice as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. The danger for the rich is that we want ministry to happen. We just don't want to do it. Y'all, I fear for this for my own life, and I fear for this for us. The reality is, is God doesn't need the money that you think belongs to you. Would you like to know why he doesn't need it? Because no dime belongs to you. It's already his. What he wants for us on the other side of generosity is freedom and joy and delight to be untethered to the things of this world. The same is true of our time. None of it belongs to us. We have been bought with a price and God himself has numbered our days. We don't know how many days we have. They're not ours. They're his. And he has given us time on this earth to experience life to the full this side of heaven. And I promise you, life to the full is giving our lives away. So what's happening here? Paul, he's not going to take their money. He's not going to play the same game that all these other people are playing. You know what? Let's go business as usual. I'm a ministry worker. I'm going to show up. You're going to give me some money. The reason it was a problem for the Corinthians is because they were clearly giving money to these super apostles, but with the rest of their lives doing all of these ungodly things. They had said, you know, I'm, I'm covered. I've done something over here. Now the rest of this over here is mine. It wasn't working out for the Corinthian church. It should be a warning to us. Paul is offering them something money cannot buy. He's saying, no way. I want more for you. I want a fuller response to the gospel for you, for your benefit. Man, this is a mess that Paul seems to be in with this church. He's trying to love them in a particular way. They're not getting him. He's not playing the games that everybody seems to be playing. Why would he put up with it? Why would Paul stay in it? with this church? The answer is in verse 19. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. Why did he persist with this church that he planted that was not getting him? 
He, he did it because he wanted to build them up. Why did he want to build them up? Because he loved them. They think he's trying to trick them. But Paul is desperate for them to know he doesn't want something from them. He wants something for them. He doesn't want their money. What he wants for them is the freedom and the joy that comes on the other side of repentance and obedience. And look, if Paul is so self-sacrificially pouring himself out for this church and he loved them so much, how on earth did they miss it? What was, what was going on that they looked to the false teachers instead of this guy, Paul, who clearly loved them? I think they were using the standards of the world to, to make their assessment, not the standards of God. They were saying, Paul must not be a real apostle. He's suffering. Successful people don't suffer, they avoid it. Important people don't endure that kind of stuff. Paul must not be legit. He's not taking our money like all these other people are. The real temptation that we face and that this church faced in Corinth was to put our trust in the things that we could see in front of us instead of the unseen good that God is working behind the scenes for us. The world looks at outward appearances. God looks at the heart. We cannot make our judgments simply by what we see, but we've got to understand that God is working behind the scenes to do and to fulfill his good purposes. We go to God and we try to understand him and relate to him on our terms all the time. And these Corinthians who are in rebellion were looking at Paul on their terms. And thus, they were looking at the gospel itself on their terms. So, Paul is misunderstood by them. He loves them anyways. Where is this love going to take him? Let's move on to verses 20 and onward. Chapter 12, verse 20. Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come... I may find you not as I wish, and you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Y'all, it's actually just now starting to get spicy, right? This line, you may not find me as you wish. What is he saying? He's saying, y'all are going to be pretty bummed out when I show up and you realize, I'm not willing to tolerate sinful rebellion anymore. You want me to play the game, and I'm not going to play it. He says, I may find you, not as I wish. He's saying, look, I don't want to show up and find quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, deceit, and disorder. What is he, what is he hoping for in his love for them? Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is interesting. This is not gotcha Paul. Paul isn't like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, told you so. He's yearning for them to repent. That's what he wants to find. He's hoping that they will turn away from their sin and towards the gospel. He's saying, when I come, I'm hoping 
that I'm seeing a change in y'all. And, and that's important. He, he's going to be sad. He yearns for them to do what is good for them. And yet, he knows that they may or may not receive him very well. And so he wants to be crystal clear about what they can expect when he shows up. And, and that's what we have in the first four verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What he's saying right here is, I'm going to be fair. I'm going I'm to look at things as they are. I'm not out to, to get anybody, but I'm going I'm to see what's there. Verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. In 13 verses 1 and 2, he is saying, when I'm coming, I'm coming to deal with unrepentance and falsehood, and I'm coming to clean house. He is deadly serious right here. This is his final appeal to this rebellious minority in the church. And he says, you know what? You, you might think I've, I've kind of been talking about my suffering and my weakness. I just want you to know on this third visit, as I'm coming back to y'all, I'm coming in the fullness of the power of God. And if I see you in rebellion, if I see you causing havoc in the church, I'm going to kick you out of the church that I planted. I whistled. I don't whistle well, but that was a whistle. Does that feel threatening? Does that seem authoritative? Does that seem a bit much? Y'all, if it does, I think we may have misunderstand. We, we might misunderstand what it actually takes to truly love someone. We might miss what true love looks like if what Paul is saying in his love for these people seems a bit much. Remember that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostles were men called by Jesus to speak with his authority as his messengers. To reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. So their rejection of Paul is deadly serious. And for him to say anything otherwise would be dishonest, it would be unkind, and it would ultimately be unloving. Look, if he loves them, he does not want them to head in the wrong direction. If he loves them, he does everything he can to stop them in their sin that is going headlong away from God. And look, we, we often hear when we know someone that we love or we care about or we know about is, is wayward and somebody else is talking about how to confront it or how to relate and they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, I just want to be loving. And sometimes what that means is, you know what, I'm afraid of conflict so I'm just going to affirm them in pursuing whatever it is they seem they want to pursue. 
What we ought to do is ask, what is this person's ultimate good according to God's standards and how can I aim them at that? It's not how can I help them pursue what they want to pursue. How do I point them to what God wants them to pursue? Look, if a baby has a poopy diaper and it looks like it doesn't want you to change their poopy diaper, what is love? It's not to let them stay in the poopy diaper. It's to change their poopy diaper. Or if you've got a more verbal toddler who says, I don't want you to change my diaper. You change their diaper. You, if you love someone, you act. Love is not passive. It is active. Love is not at a distance. It is up close and relational. Love is faithful to pursue even when being misunderstood. Look, Paul in these verses, in 2 Corinthians, is saying, even though you misunderstand me, because I love you, I'm going to come and deal with your error. I'm going to come and address the issues that you have not been able to deal with on your own. Does that sort of thinking sound familiar? Look, Paul was dogged in his willingness to be misunderstood in his love for this church. He was determined to show up and deal with their issues. Why? Because he followed the sure and steady example of Jesus who did the exact same thing. Jesus was misunderstood by the very people he came to save. But he loved us so much that he went all the way to the cross to pay for the sin that we could not deal with on our own. He loved us, but he was misunderstood, but he, he finished his task anyways. And look, you're like, well, what, what are we talking about? Paul told this church to repent. And you're like, well, that was Paul. If you don't think that Jesus' message was repent, I invite you to examine the Gospels. In his earthly ministry, out of the gate, in Capernaum, his first message is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's telling them to do a 180, to turn away. And he does it throughout his ministry. Paul is emulating Jesus, and they're both doing it in love. So don't miss what true love looks like. True love is found in a call to repentance. True love often comes in the form of a correction or a rebuke. And this is important on a couple of planes. It's important as we relate to one another, right? We've got to ask ourselves the question, do I love people enough that I'm willing to correct them according to God's standards? Not according to my preferences or not according to what popular society says, but according to God's standards, do I love somebody enough to tell them they're destroying their life? Do we love people or do we just kind of like being around them? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Alternatively, we need to ask, are we humble enough to receive the correction that we so desperately need so often in our lives? Is our first reaction to be defensive? Is our first reaction to say, they're not talking to me that way? Or is our first reaction to say, you know what? I wonder if this person is saying this in love 
Does this line up with what God's word says? Is this person actually correcting me in love? This is important for how we relate to each other. It's also so important in how we relate to God. We do not want to misunderstand God's love for us. He has given us his living word that gives us instruction for life and godliness. And sometimes, lots of times, we don't understand it. But the thing we can't do is push back against it and say, you know, I just don't know if that fits. I don't know if this clear instruction in God's word really fits for what I'm up for. You know, I think God would probably rather me be happy. We don't want to misunderstand the correction, the instruction, the paradigms of God's living word. The other thing we don't want to misunderstand is our circumstances. All throughout life, and if it hadn't happened yet, it's coming. You're going to find yourself in a situation that you wouldn't have chosen if it was up to you. You're going to be confronted with a hardship or a tragedy or a loss or something that you didn't want or it's the wrong time or not this way, God. And there's a temptation to say, man, God, God must not love me or have good things for me because that person over there seems to have a little more sunshine and roses than me. Or my plans for life are a little bit different. Here's the deal. It's so important that we trust God's love for us. We trust his word. We've got to know that even in the hard things, God is up to something. Even in the things that we don't understand, we catch wind of God is moving. It's so important for us to trust him. Why? Because behind the scenes, he's working to make us his beautiful bride. Let's pray. Lord, it is uh, amazing that you would save us, uh, that a a bunch of people that have no business knowing you can know you intimately, that a bunch of people that have done nothing to deserve your favor have actually received it instead, that a bunch of people who are rebellious against you, you would turn into your beloved children. Lord, help, help that shape the way we live our lives. Help us in receiving whatever correction that you have for us that is actually loving. Prevent us from misunderstanding you and the designs you have for us in this life, this side of heaven. We need help in that. We are prone to wander. But Lord, we are so thankful that you call us back. One of the ways you call us back is by correcting us in your love. We thank you for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.